Welcome to the Healthy Seas Podcast, a show about what we need to do to have just that, healthy seas and a healthy future. I'm your host, Crystal DiMicelli, and in each episode, we talk about the problems facing the seas and oceans and the solutions we have to fix them. Come on in, the water's fine. Today I'm with Pascal Van Erp from Healthy Seas and Ghost Diving and Mario Arena from the Society for the Documentation of Submerged Sites, otherwise known as SDSS. They recently got back from an exciting eight-day expedition off the coast of Italy's Lampedusa Island, where their efforts brought together environmental and historical conservation, generously funded by Hyundai. Thank you both for joining me today. Let's first learn a little bit about this area. Mario, what is the history of this particular location? Okay, so we are in the central Mediterranean Sea. Uh, This area was where most of the naval war in the Mediterranean during World War II was fought. In particular, the so-called Battle of Convoys, which has been a battle that lasted for three years and that caused the sinking of hundreds of ships. So for us, for looking for wrecks, using Lampedusa, Lampedusa was in, in this geographically in the middle of it, and using Lampedusa as a base of, for our expeditions in the high sea is co- very convenient. So this is why we base our activity for this project in Lampedusa. We move from there for dozens or up to a hundred miles in different directions in order to reach the route of the convoys and the areas where the fighting happened, and, and then we find the shipwrecks with the help of fishermen. So how did your two organizations start working together? And, and what are each of your roles? Well... We know each other from the diving organization. We are both active within Global Underwater Explorers. Of course, I saw the work of Mario online and on socials. And, you know, everybody's talking about new and exciting explorations from cool shipwrecks. But my marine conservation eye also saw a lot of nets. And that is actually where I'm always looking at. So where people see artifacts and possible identifications and warfare and whatever. I always look at the pollution. That's just the thing that is bothering me all the time. So I saw an opportunity to well, at least contact Mario about this and ask him if the nets are actually bothering him because that is actually what I was thinking about. And he confirmed that immediately. So yes, they are bothering him with identification because the nets are so literally packed uh, in Lampedusa, and with packed, I mean not one net, but sometimes three to five several layers on top of each other, like decades of decades of, of, of fisheries completely packing the nets. And from that perspective, we thought, okay, maybe it's a good idea to remove those nets so Mario and his team is more able to better identify the, the, the wrecks or you know find find more that they can that they are looking for. And that was actually the start three years ago of our first contact. Three years ago, it was not our first expedition. We were there just to explore a little bit the possibility to collaboration. And last year was our real first expedition together. Why did you choose this particular shipwreck this year? What's the history of this one? 
this is one of the several shipwrecks that we found in the area. And we decided to do an action on this shipwreck in particular because we were still in the process of trying to identify which ship it was exactly. We had several elements that was leading to a specific ship, but we were missing to do some measurement and to get uh, like a photogrammetry, a proper documentation of the wreck in order to confirm its identification. So the idea to clean it from some at least of the several nets that are on top of the wreck was very attractive and uh, that helped us in the process of identifying. The ship nerdy for sure is the SS Adana, which was a German freighter that was part of a, of a relatively big convoy uh, that was bringing soldiers and military supplies to Libya, to North Africa, and that was attacked during its, its journey toward Libya was attacked by airplane before and then during nighttime then was completely destroyed the whole convoy with nine ships going to the bottom of the sea including one of the attackers mm -hmm. and this ship is the only one that was found because most of the other ships ended up in the in very shallow waters in the Kerkenna shallows and uh, most probably all of them all of the wreck have been scraped after the war uh, for getting the metal out. So this, this particular ship is the only remaining artifact testifying this, this war tragedy, which brought to the death of uh, several hundreds of young men. So this is why we decided this one. Yeah. And you were able to identify this ship after the nets were removed or before? We were on the on the track before, but the removal of nets contributed significantly to the quality of the photogrammetry that we did of this wreck, and that allowed to confirm that it is in fact the SS Adana. So I do want to ask you about the photo photogrammetry. Is that what it's called? Okay. Yeah, photogrammetry. But in a, is, in a moment. I'll get back to it in, in just a moment. Okay, all right. Um, all right. But I, first, I want you guys to take us on this adventure with you. Like, how many of you were there? Like, What kind of boat did you use to get out there? Where did you sleep? What did you eat? Because this was a different expedition than what you usually do, right? Well, I think about the spontaneous way of living. That's maybe a good, a good idea that Mario will explain this, because he was the one who all uh, developed this. You are just stepping on board and enjoying the ride. My pleasure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a particular, <laughs> it's sort of a particular uh, kind of expedition because since the beginning of this project, we are using fishermen in order to find the wrecks in the high sea because the fishermen know many positions. So we are going out at sea with a fisherman boat or a fishing boat. It's an 11 meters fishing boat, pretty solid, but very Spartan at the same time. And we sort of do the same life that they normally do. So this year we were seven divers on board and uh, we were sleeping on the roof of the cabin in sleeping bags, which is uh, kind of romantic <laughs> like and challenging. Out in the middle of the ocean under the stars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not bad, but... It's also challenging. Um, yeah, life on board is actually nice because most of the time we are underwater. And then every time we come out of it from the dives, we get uh, some 
very very good food because the fisherman is a, a very good cook actually. Uh, yeah, and this is how we were spending the days out at sea. So mostly underwater, and then it was food, rest, preparing equipment, trying to manage the limited space we had on board with all the equipment that we had. It was, I think, it was very reasonable. I don't know what if Pascal <laughs> agrees. Well, you're getting used to it. In the beginning, you think, wow, okay, we have to cut down a little bit on some comfort. But I must say it's getting at one point romantic in a way. Like, yeah, I, I don't even bother. The second trip was for me super easy. Like, okay, we are here and yeah, that's it. Because you guys don't usually go out for these extended periods of time, correct? Well, we do sometimes, but then it's a more expedition-like vessel with decent bunks and a restaurant and this kind oh. of thing. So it's a, it's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as comfort on that whole vessel and nothing. In show- <laughs> not in showering, not in toilet, not in sleeping, not in eating, not in nothing. Just nothing. And that's okay because there are other things. You, you know, you have a clear sky on top of you. You have peace. You have an horizon with only sea around you. You have each other. You have finally decent talks with each other because there is no cell coverage. So there's also no internet. You know, it's not getting any better than this. That does sound like quite a nice escape. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, going three days, four days out of sea with a vessel like this is, let's say, very uncommon. Mm-hmm. And what were the conditions like above and below the surface? Yeah, above there is, it's warm, but there's also a little wind sometimes, sometimes not. But it's always very humid. The humidity is very high. So one of the downsides, which was really annoying to me, is that nothing really gets dry. So when you sleep, you wake up in a wet sleeping bag. When it's really bad, the, the, we have a sort of tarp above our top deck to at least stay out of the out of the sun and sometimes it's just the humidity is just dripping down on your sleeping bag and when you come come back from diving and your undergarment that's the gear we use in our dry suit is still wet because you had a leakage or you were sweating or whatever you really have to you want to dry that in the sun and we had several times that in the morning it was still not dry enough so that's it's getting more uncomfortable the next day and the next day and the next day. But the conditions underwater are brilliant. And that's that's nice that Mario said, yeah, you know, we are most of the time underwater. And that's actually the, the whole thing. We are, we are making very long dives. And the visibility and the conditions underwater are brilliant and uncomparable with anything else so far. So the visibility is really awesome. The underwater life is also very great. I must say, I see here in this area bigger fish than I usually see in the Mediterranean. Although I should not tell this to the fishermen <laughs> because they really want to know this. And we always tell them, that when we come up, they always ask us, so did you see big fish? No, 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 actually not. No, it's just small fish like always. It's just, you know, we just try to cover it yeah. a little bit. So yeah, but the conditions underwater are just brilliant. I cannot say different than that. And I mean, speaking of the fishers, this is actually quite a very trafficked area for for fishers, correct? Like from different countries. So yeah, it's uh, there is a lot of marine life, a lot of fishes, and as a consequence, a lot of fishing activities. 
I would say, especially from uh, the Tunisian fishermen. There are many thousands of uh, fishing vessels uh, from Tunisia, from the different um, villages and towns of Tunisia fishing in this area. And then there are the Sicilian fishermen, which is another good amount of boats. And then there are also Egyptian boats. The fishermen were telling us that there is at least 50 uh, trawled fishing boats from Egypt coming every year here to fish for some reason. Probably they fish better than in front of Egypt. Did you say... So it's still fishing activities going on. And did you say trawler boats? Those are the ones that just scrape the bottom of the, the seabed, right? Yeah. And that's one of the main reasons why the nets get caught up on the shipwrecks, correct? Because they're just dragging on the bottom? Yeah, that's correct. And so what did you observe with the nets that were covering this particular shipwreck? Did you observe anything that was on the nets or entangled in the nets? Yes. Well, the, the entanglement is, we don't see really marine life entangled in these nets because the nets are mainly tuna nets, which is a very big net, big mazes used to, to drag through the, through the waters and to just catch big fish. So it's, it's hard for uh, smaller marine life to really get entangled. And the moment it's pulled into a shipwreck and it's entangled, it's covering a large area. So it's not really entangling underwater life. Uh, but what you do see, which is grown on, is uh, other marine life like oysters, sometimes corals. Several, several other marine types are just tied up of yeah, growing on the nets, actually. Mm. And it has also to do with the, the age of the nets. So the nets are there already for a long time. So, yeah, you know, you're, we are just at one moment in time, we are just jumping in and checking out down there. And before us, no one ever came there. And after us, probably also not. So we are just there at that moment. And probably some of the nets are there already for 10 to 30 years. So, yeah, a lot happened. And probably there was also at one point a fish entangled in that net, but that is in the in the meantime, already eaten out. So it's very hard to see real entangled marine life in these nets. But in previous years, it happened. So it happens regularly that we find the fishes and turtles entangled. Oh, okay. Turtles. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's not in big amount for sure, but it's pretty regular to see like big fishes or stuff like I have in mind. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fairly depending on the type of fishing gear. You know, I'm, I, I just was talking about the tuna nets, which are very big and rough. But if you have the, the gill nets, which we also sometimes see, or more tremel nets, actually, which is slightly different, but well, more or less the same as a gill net. This has thinner lines, thinner materials, thinner, how do you call it? Thinner, thinner ropes. And the, the lobsters, particularly, like Mario is mentioning, they are easy to get entangled in these kind of nets. So uh, I didn't see them myself yet because in the last two expeditions, I, I hardly encountered that. But I'm sure that Mario, in all his years he's diving there, has seen a lot more. And so it was this tuna net that you were able to recover, correct? The first week was a smaller tuna net, and the second week we had two moments that we recovered. And the first recovery was indeed a tuna net with a lot of oysters grown on, so it was it was very hard to pull it on board, very dangerous too because it's very sharp. 
And the second net we recovered, and that's the big one you saw on several pictures we, we made of it, that is a, that's a trawler net used according to the fisherman by an Egyptian fisherman, because it's a typical type of network used by, by Egyptians. That's not a particular tuna net. It's just more an average trawler net, as far as I can see. And what will you do with the nets that were recovered? Well, that's a little bit of a thing there, because usually when you come back with nets, then, you know, everybody's asking themselves, okay, and now what? Because it can go to Danville. It's, it's very depending on the location. And in Lampedusa, we were not ready yet to find a decent way of recycling. But this year, that was different. This year, the moment we realized that we had a very huge net, we asked the fisherman to Mario. Mario is his name, not Mario. Arena, another Mario. Another <laughs> Mario. There's, uh, yeah, we still are deciding who is the real Mario, but okay, this is Fisherman Mario. <laughs> and, uh, and he was telling us, actually, okay, uh, I will arrange a crane. We can do that. And the moment he did that, the guy actually immediately asked, okay, but can we have the net? Because this net we can cut pieces out of because some of the types we still use here in Lampedusa. So actually we gave the net back to the fisherman to reuse. So in a way it's recycling. Okay. And this net was so large that it needed a crane. Yeah, it was really huge, actually. And we didn't even have the complete net because we had to cut off several parts because it was a a big rope with steel wire, steel cable connected to the net. So we had to leave that down. At one point, we still we, we had to decide to cut it off because it was just too big for the time we had. And we also have to, you know, down there, you have to make a decision. Okay, it's nice to cut down here a big piece of net and shoot it up to the surface. But you also have to realize that you have to get it on board. And that was with a small vessel we have quite a challenge. So that's why we had this big recovery planned on the very last day for that reason, because otherwise we cannot move on the boat anymore. I was going to ask, how did seven of you walk around that giant net and sleep? And, and well, after, after so. we had the boat on uh, the, the the net on board, we simply had hardly space to move anymore. So it was it was we really had to plan the recovery. Once this net was removed, you were able to get a better view of the wreck. What did you learn about it that you didn't know before? Well, we could assess uh, a cargo hold, which was completely obstructed by the net. So we could we could inspect the inside of this cargo hold and discover. You were able to get in. Yeah, yes, yes, uh -huh. definitely. And it was pretty fascinating. It was full of artillery ammunition and parts of airplanes. So there were parts of airplanes. So I don't know if it was spare parts or airplanes in like to be put together, so transported in pieces toward the destination. So it was very exciting actually. And what's cool is that now we will be able to see what was inside this wreck as well because of the pictures that you took with this technology. How do you say it? The photogrammetry. <laughs> photogrammetry yeah. technology. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's a very interesting technique. Very commonly used now in archaeology or for also in architecture in many applications and. For us, it's a fantastic way to represent a shipwreck. It consists in doing several thousands of pictures. So the, the Adana, for example, required some 20,000 pictures in order to, to get the whole ship represented, the whole shipwreck represented. So we, we covered the whole ship 
with pictures. And then all these pictures are uh, uploaded in a specific software. It requires several days of processing all these images, but it, it gives then a three-dimensional model of the ship in the, in the condition it is. So it's like a 3D puzzle. Uh, oh. and, yeah. and so someone goes around the ship little by little and this machine's just taking pictures. Yes, yes. It, it takes hours and hours of bottom time or time on the break in order to get the whole ship covered. And typically, then we, we try to process as soon as we get back on the boat. So we have computers on the boat and then more powerful computer on shore. So we process so that we can see if we are missing some point because one of the challenges is just to try to really cover the whole ship without creating any hole in the whole structure, which normally happens and requires that we go back and spend some other time doing more pictures in order to, to have all the ship in pictures. You said it takes hours. How many hours are you down there at a clip? It depends by the depth, but in this case, the depth was 60 meters, 58 meters. So we can spend like a little bit more than one hour on the bottom each dive. And this requires then a, an ascent of a couple of hours, two and a half hours of ascent. And you actually didn't use regular tanks, right? You were using rebreathers, they're called. Can you explain what yeah. they are? These are recycling devices. So the, the gas that we breathe, instead of being left in the water or making bubbles out, out of the system, it gets back into the system, it gets reconditioned. So the, the CO2 that we produce gets, uh, gets filtered. And uh, some oxygen that we use with the metabolism is added. And then we rebreathe the same gas. So this allows for a very long duration of the amount of gas that we carry with us. So it's just this closed circuit of air that you're breathing, basically. Yeah, we don't, we don't breathe really uh, air. We breathe specific gases that are better for diving. They, they prevent uh, or maintain us very, very clean in the mind. So avoid the narcosis that otherwise you can get with air. And, other problems, let's say. So we use special gases and we rebreathe wow. these gases. Yeah. What will these pictures be used for? Where can can we look them up? If you can look them up, yeah, for sure. They will be presented in a exhibit in the Sea Museum of Palermo uh, late this year, I think in December or January next early next year. And then they will be published in a website, a dedicated website that we are preparing, dedicated to the shipwrecks of this specific area and to their stories, history, all of this. Oh, you'll have so, to share that information and those yes, links yes, when, yes. when they come around. We'll be found for sure on stss.blue with the final E, which is our website. And as soon as the other websites will be ready for sure there will be a link there and yes now wasn't there something with virtual reality as well yeah we are using also 360 three-dimensional videos 
for stereo videos, a special camera in this case, which is to include six different cameras covering the whole sphere around you, so covering a 360 environment and giving 360 videos that with the headset then you can uh, enjoy uh, in an experience that is very similar to diving actually. So it's a bit uh, part of our mission. What we try to do is to bring these the, the underwater environments to the general public and to give the most re realistic or fascinating experience that current technology allows. So 360 okay. video is another type of documentation that, that we try to do always on break. Sounds like a lot of fun. So those headsets will be found at this expedition in Palermo? Exhibition, yes, yes, at the, yes. All right, great. Now, did you guys discover anything apart from from this particular wreck while you were there? Well, in this pro we are carrying on this project since uh, several years, and in these years we found 43 wrecks, historical wrecks in this area. And aside from the wrecks, we find their contents, what they were containing, which is top-world supplies, very fascinating stuff because... Uh, we are finding many, many vehicles and all that kind of stuff of the 40s, uh, super fascinating. We are finding armored tank as well and uh, artillery and a lot of ammunition, so many fascinating things. Fascinating, especially because they are underwater, okay, mm. because there are weapons and stuff made for war, but until they are underwater, they are very nice to see. Will you guys be going back to this wreck or to any others? Well, the, yeah, next week. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, you know, you know what? Mario is going back. I think a couple of a couple of months a year, so he is continuously on this. And uh, the, the the project together with Ghost Diving and Out the Seas is just a couple of weeks, and we are actually planning for next year to go a month. So it will be it will be extended a little bit. But yeah, well, for Mario, it's one big playground, I think. He's, he's there for a couple of months and he can explore the whole area. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Congratulations on this successful expedition. And I'm excited to learn about what happens next year. We will keep you posted. Healthy Seas is a nonprofit on a journey from waste to wear. Founded in 2013, the organization aims at reducing marine litter caused by lost fishing gear through cleanup, prevention, and education activities. The nets collected by Healthy Seas are subsequently reused and recycled and used by its partners for the creation of new products.